I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast special announcement. I am teaming up with Katie Couric Media's Wake Up Call and Random House to give away 100 copies of the book Stranger Care by Sarah Santillis. I'm really excited about this. Here's a little about Sarah's book, and we collectively are giving away 100 copies. After their decision not to have a biological child, Sarah Santillis and her husband, Eric, decide to adopt via the foster care system. Despite knowing that the system's goal is the child's reunification with the birth family, Sarah opens their home to a flurry of social workers who question them, evaluate them, and ultimately prepare them to welcome a child into their lives, even if it means most likely having to give the child back. Stranger Care is an illuminating read, and Sarah will be on this podcast soon. So, if you would like to enter for a chance to win, please go to the link in the episode description from right where you clicked on it and enter your email address, first and last name. By doing so, you're agreeing to the sweepstakes official rules and agree to receive communications and special offers from Katie Couric's Wake Up Call and Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for doing it and enter to win today. Just go back to the episode description. Thanks again. David Page is the author of Food Americana. Two-time Emmy winner David Page changed the world of food television by creating, developing, and executive producing the groundbreaking show Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, which, by the way, my husband Kyle watches 
a lot. And so therefore I do too. Before that, as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest, he traveled Europe, Africa, and the Middle East doing two things, covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. Once back in the States, Page pursued his passion both personally and professionally. Show producing Good Morning America, his substantial food coverage included cooking segments by Emeril Lagasse creating diners, drive-ins, and dives, and hands-on producing its first 11 seasons took him deep into the world of American food, its vast variations, its history, its evolution, and especially the dedicated cooks and chefs keeping it vibrant. His next series, The Syndicated Beer Geeks, dove deep into the intersection of great beer and great food. It is those experiences, that education, the discovery of little-known stories and facts that led Paige to dig even deeper and tie the strands together in Food Americana. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss food Americana, the remarkable people and incredible stories behind America's favorite dishes. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. It's great to be here. So, David, would you mind telling listeners a bit more, aside from this great subtitle, about what Food Americana is about and also what made you want to write this book? Well, Food Americana is an attempt to, a successful one, I hope, (laughs) define what American cuisine is. We all go about our lives every day eating a relatively narrow selection of foods that have become American, but few people stop to think, how did they become American? How how did our menu get made? And the answer that I found was, we've created our own cuisine from bits and pieces of the foods of other countries and other cultures analogous to how we created a country from immigrants from here, there, and everywhere. And I I was motivated to write it because, first of all, most of my career, I was a TV producer. Writing for television is a unique, often undervalued skill because it requires some real jumping around and some anonymity. You're not writing your story in your words. You're using your words to tie together as invisibly as possible things that are unfolding on screen in terms of pictures and sound. When you write a TV piece, you don't get to sit down and I was almost going to say type. <laughs> you don't get to sit down at the keyboard and simply start with it was a dark and stormy night and then Oedipus killed his father. And in every TV producer's mind, there is a sense that I could write a book. I myself have gone through a variety of careers. I'm a little restless. Yes, almost all of them were television, but they were different kinds of television. I I tend to change every few years. And we had just gotten to the point where it was time for something new. And I said to myself, I'm just going to sit down and write the damn thing. So I did. And here it is. Fantastic. <laughs> that really that is the difference between becoming an author or not. The magic is actually having a manuscript and getting it out there. <laughs> well, but also the naivete involved in not knowing just how hard it is. I allotted a year to the project. It took two. Okay. And in deciding what to put in the book, I was somewhat naive. I chose to do a variety of different foods or foodways one per chapter, well, one per most chapters, without really thinking through the fact that to do adequate research to write a chapter on something, 
is almost as much research as to write a book on something. So it would have been a lot easier to write a book on lobster rolls <laughs> or, or a book on sushi. But instead, I dumped it all in my own lap and it, it, it took a good couple of years. <laughs> But it was enjoyable. I was surprised to learn how sushi came about through Yule Brenner and the one tiny little store near the cinema, or not the cinema, what do you call it? The studio. Yeah, one of the studios. Yeah, the studio. No, he, he played a big part, and he was representative of the celebrities who played a big part. Sushi came to America, for the most part, with Japanese businessmen who were posted in California as Japan rebuilt its economy after World War II. However, as often happens in Hollywood, some celebrities got a sniff of it and decided to make it the thing. It started with, among others, Yul Brenner, who would often eat sushi at a restaurant next to one of the studios that he was shooting at. The glitterati picked it up. It became kind of a hip thing to do. But two other elements of American society played a great role in this. Number one in the 70s, we went through a governmental food health phase. People were being, perhaps for the first time, warned by their government to eat less red meat, more fish, try to eat better. And there was a mini series on NBC called Shogun, starring Richard Chamberlain as a samurai. And all of a sudden, because of that, everything Japanese became hip. So, yes, it became kind of a cool thing to do to have sushi. So is it like the kombucha of today? Better, by my own opinion, <laughs> but yes. Uh, it, it is a food trend that was created to a great extent by people being cool. Will kombucha be with us in 40 or 50 years? We can check back and see if it entered the lexicon of American cuisine like sushi did. Now, and remember, sushi is a perfect example of how foods become part of our cuisine. We, we check them out, we try them, and then we change them to our taste. The vast majority of the sushi sold in the United States is big rolls. There are not a lot of big rolls sold in Japan, there are a fair amount of rolls. They tend to be simple. Ours tend to be overstuffed, complex, and sauced beyond belief. Some of ours are filled with things like French fries and steak. Some of ours, I, I focus on a, a sushi bar and a gas station in Oklahoma, where their top seller is deep fried sushi because they said to themselves, and by the way, they, they sell very traditional style sushi also for those who want it. But if you're going to sell sushi in Dell City, Oklahoma, no aspersions on Oklahoma. I briefly attended both of their state universities and left without a degree. If you're going to sell sushi in, in Dell City, Oklahoma, you're, you're going to have to deep fry a lot of it. Wow. No, it's so true. And you point out, you can get sushi now everywhere. It used to be such a oh, delicacy. Yeah. And now it's like, not only is it at Cinderella, but it's like, you know, at the airport. Like the first time I saw it in the airport, I'm like, ah, do I want sushi at the airport? How do I feel about this? I don't know. Like now it's everywhere. It's just like anywhere you go. Well, the top executives produces the most pre-sushi in America told me, she made this analogy because she certainly considers it American food, that when she and her friends would duck out of high school to get lunch, they went for a burger. Her kids today go for sushi. 
And my definition, by the way, of, of what I think of as American food is a food item that has truly become a part of our daily menu virtually everywhere. There are other popular foods such as Thai or Vietnamese that I don't think have yet crossed over. They're popular in many places, but they're not, hey, let's go out for sushi. It, it's it's a different experience. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Sushi now is like the common denominator. I feel like even with, and I know you mentioned that like one of the most popular was the the California roll or something like just very tame, like not even like, you know, the cucumber rolls or things that don't even have no. fish, all of that. <laughs> Except what's interesting about the California roll, and I am told that the California roll has now migrated to Japan. Oh, that's interesting. Where it's obviously seen as an American item, but people think the California roll was one of those items invented for Americans. And there is great dispute about this. There is a school of thought that the California roll, which has no raw fish in it and has avocado, was actually invented during a time of year when fatty tuna was unavailable on the West Coast of the U.S., and it was invented for a Japanese clientele using the texture and fattiness of the avocado specifically to replace the fatty tuna. <laughs> now, others say it was invented to suit American tastes. It's Whether it was or not, it certainly fits American tastes. Very true. Wow. I've even been trying to teach my little guy how to make cucumber rolls with the seaweed and everything. So yes, I could say it's safely pervaded and I don't mean to spend the whole time talking about, I know this is one, only one chapter in your book, but. (laughs) But you know, cucumber rolls are very, very traditionally Japanese. Sushi does not require fish. Sushi refers to a foodstuff that is based around vinegared rice. So it's not at all unusual to have sushi in Japan that features vegetables, not fish. Okay. Well, now I don't feel quite like such a well, sushi lightweight. <laughs> You're not a lightweight. <laughs> you know, not, I it's like omakase or whatever, you know. Well, omakase is, you don't have to do it. The chef no, does No, I, I can't even eat it. I yeah. can't. Like, I don't. Why not? You know what? If you went in and told a sushi chef, A, omakase, but B, I'm a first-timer and I'm an American, the chef would take care of you. I don't know. I really only eat salmon. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, salmon is actually one of the most dangerous fishes in that respect. When salmon is used in sushi, when salmon is served, quote-unquote, raw, by law, it must have been frozen first because salmon is host to all sorts of parasites. So now I've turned you off salmon like, too. Oh gosh, that explains oh, there's it. Always, there's always lox and bagels, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which is the perfect food? Yes, I I like I'll eat salmon in all forms. Yes, there's nothing wrong with the with the bagel or the smoked salmon is the perfect food. A bagel, lox, oh, and the cream whole thing. Is the, the whole thing. Food. It's it's yeah. I I I don't live in New York anymore. I live in New Jersey, so intrinsically, you're not going to reach those levels of perfection. But I, I had I stopped at New York Bagels today and got a bagel, ox, and cream cheese sandwich. My wife did as well, both on everything bagels. And I could die now. It's great. <laughs> Perfect. I was just saying that yesterday for Father's Day. And I don't, this will probably air later, but 
we were debating having like going out and I was like, or we could all just get bagels. And then we were like, well, does anybody want to, are we going to all eat bagels? Then we're going to be hungry later. And I don't know. Anyway, we decided not to get bagels. We went out and it was terrible. So we should have just gotten the bagels. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. But you know, you, you talk about the premise of my book is that Foods of other countries and cultures became American. I got an ad in my email promoting either July 4th or Father's Day as the day to eat bagels. Oh, come on. Okay. It wasn't Israeli Independence Day. Wow. It's, it's, in fact, you know, the most bagels in America are now sold by Dunkin' Donuts or Dunkin' as they've rebranded. I, I don't like that rebrand. What, what is up with that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been doing some research for another project. They identify themselves as a coffee retailer, not as a donut retailer anymore. And and when it comes to franchised coffee sales, they are by far number one. Now, they're dwarfed by Starbucks, which owns all of its own stores. But no, Dunkin's a coffee company. Hmm. Still, I don't know. I I don't like anything to change, so I would be happy. Okay, you're clearly a a culinary conservative. I know, it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. So you don't like the fact that regional specialties are now available all over the country, that you can get a lobster roll in Utah? Well, I'm a little suspect. I don't think I I would not order a lobster roll in Utah. Would you? Well, depending (laughs) on how hungry I was. 
No, look, I, I grew up in Western Mass. We would go to Maine for the summers. I have a deep and abiding respect for lobster eaten right off the pier. The question is, as my book explores, any number of regional foods are now available all over the country. Lobster rolls are a perfect example. There are several companies that own or franchise lobster roll trucks all over the country. The question is, should you not be able to get a lobster roll at all in Utah? I use them specifically because I feature a Utah lobster roll joint in the book. Or because the processing of lobster, whether it be shipped fresh or frozen, has gotten pretty damn good. And the lobster meat you get in Salt Lake or Park City, no, it's nowhere near as good as you'd get off the wharf. But for those who don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good, is it better that you can have a lobster roll at all? How I was almost going to use the word authentic, which I hate. How I'm so glad you stopped yourself. Yeah, I I'm did. relieved Thank on your behalf. I, I almost yeah. hit the screen. How traditionally faithful are they to the way I think a lobster roll should be made on a certain kind of bun, grilled a certain way? The noted food journalist Ruth Reichel told me in no, no question about it, that eating a lobster roll outside of Maine even though the place that made them famous was in New York, is in New York, that eating a lobster roll anywhere but Maine is like eating strawberries out of season. But the fact of the matter is, in our current culinary culture, we do eat strawberries out of season and, and tasteless tomatoes and all sorts of things because we want everything good enough all the time. It's a conundrum. I, I, I've always looked forward to going to particular places because of the particular food you can get there. New Orleans, for example, being an extreme. But the fact is, there are things that originally could only be had in their hometown, state, region. Now, pretty much everything is available pretty much anywhere. I still look forward to going to where it was created. We recently went, I know you have a whole chapter on pizza and the evolution of that and who, you know, made it, how the crust even was different because of the dough and all this stuff. And recently I took my husband to Sally's Pizza in New Haven. And I'm like, no, no, this is like. No, locally. no, Sally's a pizza. A Sorry, pizza. Sally's That's a pizza. You You're right. You're right. I know. Yep. Okay. I knew that. I apologize. Okay. I'm so sorry. Anyway, I'm like, and I hadn't gone in 20 years or something like that. And he had never mm. been. And I'm like, well, how much better is it than, you know, what is the difference, right? Anyway, it, could it really be that much better than all the pizzas we've had all over the country? It was, wasn't it? Was. It? it was amazing. For two reasons. One, they invented it. So as long as they've stayed true to what they do, they're the ones everyone else is copying. And number two, eating done right is an experience that includes environment, that includes tradition, mm -hmm. that includes looking around and going, hey, they, they made this thing here first. Yeah. You know, you can get a good clam pie a lot of places. I, I live on a tourist island in South New Jersey where the clams are fresh. And there's a place that makes a pretty good clam pie. It ain't going to be like New Haven. <laughs> Just isn't. Yeah. Well, I guess, I don't know. I don't even have the answer. Do I? I mean, I guess I'm glad that there's things everywhere, but there is something special about 
going to the the source of it and the experience of it. And even now post-COVID with all these restaurants serving food in like plastic containers, I'm like, what this, no, this is like ruining the whole thing. So anyway. Yeah. And, 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 and look, let, let's not forget the fact that hype aside, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of hype for things like heritage, God knows what <laughs> real food is real. I was interviewed by some folks down in South Carolina the other day, and we got to talking about grits. And I confessed that I, a New York Jew, used instant grits. They fell over, clutched their throats in agony, and sent me two large sacks of heritage grits, two different types, from the the low country. And I made grits the other day. And God almighty, was there a difference. It was astonishing. And and I, pretty intensely focused on food and food quality, had gone my entire life without making real grits. It was time to fix that. It was amazing. Now, if I could only get fresh shrimp, but I don't live in a shrimp region, so there you go. Gosh, the last thing I need is more foods to fall in love with. I feel like it's hard enough to not overeat the ones that I already love. <laughs> Well, I'm trying to figure out what the taste contrast would be because where I live, we bring in, there's a small commercial fishing port at the top of the island, and I believe that we bring in the finest scallops on earth. And I'm trying to figure out, given the sweetness of shrimp and the sweetness of scallops, if I could do something with scallops and grits. Mm, I would order that. Yeah, I'm going to try it. We'll see what All happens. Right. That'll be your next project. <laughs> My next big project. I'll report back. Okay. Can you give me like the quick rundown of your how you even got into being so obsessed with food and how this all started and your TV career? All in like, you know, two minutes sure. and less. <laughs> yeah, in about, what do you want? 30 yeah, seconds, sure. 45? I grew up with a wonderful mother and father, neither of whom could cook worth a damn. So I really didn't appreciate food for a long time. I mean, I like to eat. I'm not thin. But it wasn't until NBC News sent me to Europe, whence I covered Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, that I really started to focus on food as a a thing, a matter of substance. As I went from country to country or even region to region in various countries, I would encounter foods very specific to that place and quickly came to the realization that in many ways, food is the gateway to another country's culture. Along the way, I started to develop a real appreciation for food as more than just fuel or or something to fill up on. When it came back to the States, I worked in network news for another several years. We ended up leaving network news, briefly working at home shopping, which I quickly figured out I really shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Left, opened a production company, and had no business. So I called a friend of mine who had worked for me at the Weekend Today show, Al Roker, who had a production company of his own, in addition to his NBC activities, and said, I'm starving do you have any work? And he said, yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff for the Food Network. Why don't you do some of that for me? So I did, including uh, Al subcontracted a documentary to me on the history of diners. And that's how I got my toe into the food journalism world. And, And as you know, 
you are in journalism or certainly television the last thing you were. So I had once been an investigative reporter, then I was an international journalist, then I was a morning show. Well, now I'm a, a food guy. Okay. I started pitching the Food Network directly and got nowhere. I would talk to the same executive over and over and over again, and she would be very kind and polite and say, no, no, no. Finally, one day I'm on the phone with her, pitching, 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 and she's saying, no, no, no. And hearkening back to that documentary I had worked on, she finally said to me in desperation, don't you have anything else about diners? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm developing a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And she said, well, that sounds interesting. This was late on a Thursday or Friday. She said, we're having a development meeting Tuesday to get me something on Monday. So I hung up the phone. And uh, on one hand, this was great. They'd shown interest on something. On the other hand, I had just invented the title out of thin air or pulled it out of a body part, if you wish to be a little more scatological. Spent the weekend calling people. This was kind of before everything was done by email, wrote a proposal, uh, got it to her on Monday. And shortly thereafter, they, they picked up a special, which then turned into a series. And now I'm a food journalist. Oh, my gosh. And are you still involved yeah. with the show or what? No, I left after the 11th season. How many seasons are there? Oh, they're in 30 something. Oh, now. my gosh. Yeah, there's th at the time I was doing it, we, we were doing three seasons a year. They may be down to two. Got it. But no, I, I left after season 11. I syndicated a show on craft beer. That's right. I that. And then I, then I did some development work for Streaming Venture, and then I decided it was time to write the book. Wow. And what next? Another book. Another book. Yeah, no, I, I like this author thing. It was a dark and stormy night. It's a book that's sort of a sequel to this, but different. It's it's different categories of food. And I am uh, assuming it'll be another two years, but I'm hard at work on it. Wow. That's awesome. I think you should write about more of the personal stuff that you talked about in the introduction. And Damn, boring. I don't find that stuff boring. boring. Oh, okay. I think you have an interesting story to tell. I think you should consider it. Well, that that's very kind of you. I mean, not, uh, not everybody has had a life like that. I mean, that's... Very interesting. My my daughter wrote some about that in a Facebook post on Father's Day. And my daughter's in her late 20s. And my wife turned to me and said, see, she did listen to the war story. <laughs> I read something about my dad, too. And he's like, oh, wow, you really did. Like, you do see what I do. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, the, the story my daughter seems to like the most is during the Romanian Revolution, I led, I put together and led an international convoy in through the Hungarian side because the border guards at the border there in Romania were ethnic Hungarians, so they just let us through. Anyway, we got as far as Timisoara, where the rebels were putting up quite a battle with the Securitate, the uh, government forces. Anyway, we get out of the car, and my correspondent is a veteran, George Lewis. He did Vietnam. I, at this point, am relatively new to Bang Bang. We get out of the car, and all of a sudden, there's this huge burst of AK-47 fire. And instinctively, I find myself lying on the ground next to George. I have no idea. I do not remember going to the ground, but I was definitely there. I'd have been underground if I could. And I turned to him and I said, well, George, what do we do now? Since we were kind of 
pinned down outside a hotel, he reached into his backpack and came out with a bottle of booze, unscrewed it and said, this. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be my daughter's favorite story. I think you should write that book. I think that I think that will be a very good book. I would really think hard about it. That's my my two cents. Um, Okay. okay. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Don't give up. If you've got something to say, say it. I had a hell of a time initially selling this book while I was writing it. I managed to obtain an agent. It's thundering out. My dog has just come in from shelter. I managed to obtain a relatively big name agent with the recommendation of someone famous in the food world. And she just wasn't working it. And I'm writing this book, hoping to hell I can sell it. And she finally, after a year, sends me an email saying, hey, I tried. I'm going to have to drop you as a client. First call I made was to an author I had interviewed the, the prior week for my hamburger chapter. And I said, hey, I'm changing agents. And I, I like your book. And we got along well. Could you suggest to me who, who you used? And he said, I didn't use an agent. I was approached by a publishing company and wrote directly for them. But I'd be glad to give you the connection. So he gave me someone's name, and I uh, sent an email, and then we had a phone call. And two weeks later, I had a deal. So if you believe you have a story to tell, just keep pushing. You know, any creative endeavor involves a tremendous amount of rejection. I had a hit TV show. Um, it was one among hundreds of shows that I pitched. You, you just have to you have to keep doing it. And don't lie to yourself. Make sure you're doing it well. Oh, you know, have someone you trust read it and then rip you apart. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Well, this has been so fun. Next time you're in the city and I'm in the city, which I'm not now, but we should have some bagels and locks together or something. That would be fun. Oh, we'll go to uh, Russ and Daughters on the Lower East Side. I would love to do that. The Russ, I like the Russ and Daughters uptown, underneath the Guggenheim. You know, have you been there? at the museum? Yeah. yeah, it's been closed for the pandemic. I don't know when they're going to oh, open. Oh, yeah. But we'll figure we'll it figure out. We'll figure it out. Okay? We'll find a place. Okay. <laughs> um, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thanks for coming. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.